In the introduction to last week's sermon, we established that Jesus was born into a time of great messianic expectation. All of Israel was looking for her Messiah. Could this be the Christ was the common reaction to Jesus' miracles and his teaching. Never has anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind, John 9.32. Never has a man spoken like this man, John 7.46. And as we saw last week, that messianic expectation which just permeated Israel arose most clearly from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I mean, this is the messianic prophecy par excellence. It leads the faithful Israelites to expect an incarnate king who is at one and the same time both divine and human, who would reign upon the throne of David expansively and righteously and eternally. Therefore, when Jesus did appear on the scene... It made sense that such a Messiah would perform miracles like Jesus performed and would speak with an astonishing authority like Jesus spoke. But there is an element missing from the prophecy of Isaiah 9. And indeed it was the element that was missing from most of the people's messianic expectations. Which is why when Jesus began to highlight this element, all of the massive crowds just went away. It didn't fit with what they were expecting. It didn't fit with what they wanted. If this son of man, son of David, son of God of Isaiah 9 is going to reign over an an everlasting, eternal, expansive, righteous kingdom of peace, who, we might ask, will be his subjects? This was the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. See, the people expected the advent of the Messianic king of Isaiah 9, and they expected that they would be a part of his Messianic kingdom. But John was sent to inform the people that they were not at all prepared for the king's coming. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? You look for his coming. You delight in his coming. And behold, he is coming. But who can stand when he appears? They didn't get that. And so John came as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preaching repentance of sins in the coming kingdom of God. 
You see, before the people could receive their messianic king and before they could enter into his messianic reign, they needed a messianic savior to provide for them a messianic salvation. And so the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel spoke to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, Israel's fundamental problem, humanity's fundamental problem, our fundamental problem is not external. It's not outside of us. It's not invading armies or unjust governments or political upheaval. Our fundamental problem is internal. We are alienated from God and under his wrath because of our sin. So Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. Therefore, the Messiah needed to be more than a son of David who establishes an eternal throne and reigns over an everlasting kingdom. He needed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by providing a full and sufficient atonement for the sins of his people. And this is the very thing Israel could not understand. This is what they could not accept. The word of the cross is a stumbling block, both in their day and in ours. Think of what you're going to hear on the radio station and on the news and on television and in movies over the course of the next week and ask yourself how much of that is going to deal with the cross of Jesus. They have no idea why they ought to rejoice in the birth of a king. We cannot celebrate the advent of Christ without celebrating the purpose of his coming. Before Christ came to reign as king, he had to suffer as the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. Isaiah 1, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, or any other messianic text is incomplete apart from Isaiah 53. Because it explains how a sinful people will be reconciled to their God in order that they may enter into and enjoy his everlasting reign. So we're going to celebrate this fourth Advent service, the final service before Christmas by looking into the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. This is the center of Jesus' messianic work. If we don't understand this chapter, we don't understand Christmas. This is how Jesus saves his people from their sins. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 is the fourth and final of the so-called servant songs of Isaiah. These are four explicit prophecies of a future messianic figure whom Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. And this final song is comprised of five stanzas which contain three verses each. And this morning we're going to briefly walk through each stanza relating it to what we know of the story of Christ, seeing how Jesus fulfills each and every line of this song. 
How Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus who saves his people from their sins. The first stanza, which as I said begins in Isaiah 52. The chapter divisions aren't the best here in this uh, latter portion of Isaiah. The first stanza describes the success of the servant and provides a summary for the entire song. In fact, the rest of the song is an outworking or an explanation of these three verses. Look with me beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. So the song begins on a note of triumph. The servant of the Lord, my Bible says, will act wisely. Should probably better be translated something like, he shall prosper or better, he shall succeed. In other words, his work is not going to be in vain. He's not coming in order to fail. He will accomplish what he intends. And the result of his successful mission will be that he is high and lifted up. A phrase which if we're reading from start to finish in Isaiah ought to ring some bells. Isaiah saw a vision in the sixth chapter in which he saw the Lord seated upon a throne and he too was high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, the servant of the Lord is going to succeed in his messianic work and as a result, he is going to be exalted to the very throne of God. Once again, Isaiah is speaking of an incarnate Messiah, a God-man. So, so far, we haven't encountered anything new. We've, We've seen this before. We saw it in Isaiah 7. We saw it in Isaiah 9. We knew from Isaiah 9, for instance, that the Lord's Messiah was to be the incarnate Son of God who would reign upon the throne of an everlasting kingdom. But the next verse, verse 14, stops us in our tracks. It's astonishing. How will the servant of the Lord succeed? Not as you might expect. He's going to succeed by suffering. Evidently, the servant of the Lord's body will be brutalized beyond recognition. The disfigurement of which verse 14 speaks is not going to be caused by some wasting disease like leprosy or cancer. It coincides with the blood which will be spilled with which he will sprinkle the nations, verse 15. Verse 14, in other words, is speaking. It's foretelling of the unparalleled torture which Jesus endured at the hands of the Romans during the course of his trial and his crucifixion. Do you remember that scene from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ that's startling, unsettling, kind of makes you sick to your stomach scene that depicted the scourging of Jesus when his flesh was ripped from his body by the Roman scourge. As far as we know, that was a pretty accurate historical depiction of what the Romans did to victims they would later crucify. They didn't want crucifixion victims hanging on the cross for days on end. They so weakened them by the scourging that they would die in short order once they had been hung up on the cross. 
So imagine the astonishment of the crowd when Jesus was then brought back from the place of scourging to stand before the multitude, his face swollen and bloodied from the bruises and the slaps in the face, his hair matted with sweat and dust and blood from the crown of thorns that's still pressing into his skull, the purple robe draped over his shredded back. And all that the, the naked eye can see was this massive mud and blood and Raw flesh. Then Pilate calls out to the crowd and says, Behold the man. And they're thinking, The man? Is he even human? How is he still alive? They're astonished at him. Well, he won't be alive for long. He will die to sprinkle the nation, says verse 15. And if you were a Jew living in Isaiah's day in 8th century BC, you would hear the word sprinkle and immediately other temple words, sacrifice words would spring to your mind. Words like sanctify, cleanse, atone. In Leviticus and Exodus, those words are commonly linked with this verb sprinkle. So Isaiah represents the servant of the Lord here as the high priest who takes the blood of atonement, not the blood of bulls and goats, which can in no way take away sin, but blood from his own wounds. And with it, he sprinkles the nations, indicating that his suffering and his death has significance, not for Israel only, but for men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Anyone, at any time, in any place, in any condition, no matter what they've done, who has the blood of Jesus sprinkled upon their souls by faith, is made clean, is justified before God. And according to the Apostle Paul, who quotes from verse 15 in Romans 15, the sprinkled blood that renders the nations clean is extended to the nations. It's taken to the nations through the preaching of the gospel. the, The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is transported across the globe and spans the ages through the preaching of the gospel, which means... That your sinful soul can be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus today through the preaching of this text. Are you sinful this morning? Do you come in dirty, unclean, unrighteous, defiled, wondering how on earth you could possibly stand in the sight of a just and holy God? Jesus stands here this morning in the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit to sprinkle his blood upon you. And when that blood touches your soul, all guilt is removed, all sin is atoned for, and you are clean in his sight. This, says Isaiah, will shut the mouths of kings as they see the crucified Messiah risen and reigning in glory with his redeemed saints. John says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. The suffering and the death of the Messiah does not signal his defeat. 
The cross is the means of his victory and ours. So the servant of the Lord will succeed, but to the astonishment of all, we learn in this first stanza that he will succeed by suffering. The second stanza takes us back to the beginning then of the Messiah's ministry. So if the first stanza was kind of like a a broad summary or overview of the Messiah's work, now in the second one, we're going back to when he first appears in Galilee at the beginning of his messianic mission. If you remember from your reading of the Gospels, he receives a rather cold reception. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. John wrote in John 1.11, he came to his own, and those who were his own received him not. Later in his gospel, John quotes from this verse, from Isaiah 53.1. In John 12.37, he says, though he had done so many signs before them, that they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then, as now, the overwhelming reaction to the person of Christ was unbelief, rejection, scorn. They would not, they could not see that he was, in fact, the the arm of the Lord, which is a figure of speech used throughout Isaiah for God's saving activity. The, The picture is this. In Christ, God stretched forth his powerful saving arm in order to rescue his people, but they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. They didn't want it. They didn't believe it. Why? Well, John, in John 12, quoting from this verse, explains Israel's unbelief as an act of God's judgment. They could not believe because God had blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. And that's one half of the explanation. But in Isaiah 53, Isaiah explains the unbelief and rejection of the people From the human standpoint, they scorned the Messiah. They rejected him for three reasons, according to Isaiah. First, they deemed his origins too ordinary. I mean, yes, as we we sang about this morning, his birth was announced by angelic choirs. It was attended by astronomical events. There was the visit from the Magi from the east. But it seems that over the next 30 years, all of that was forgotten. And by the time Jesus began his public ministry, the common reaction was, Matthew 13, 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? It's too ordinary. Second, his appearance was too ordinary. He wasn't a head taller than the rest of his countrymen, like Saul, for instance. He didn't walk around with that glowing aura surrounding his body and the halo surrounding his head like he's often depicted in Renaissance art. You would not have picked him out of a crowd and said, hey, there he is. This must be the one. This must be the Messiah. 
Because even when Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah and testified to that claim by healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and making the lame to walk, cleansing the lepers, even raising the dead, they still didn't believe him. Why? He just looked too ordinary. And third, his sufferings were too ordinary. Israel was looking for a Messiah, but not a suffering Messiah. You see, when your core worldview says that good things happen to good people, that prosperity is a sign of God's favor and blessing and sufferings are a sign of God's disfavor, which was the overwhelming worldview in Jesus' day and ours, you're going to stumble, stumble over a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. And so they did. Not only did they not believe him, not only did they not receive him, But they despised him. They forsook him. They hid their face from him. They killed him. Your reaction to the suffering Messiah reveals the condition of your soul. John said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you look at Christ... And you see him revealed so vividly in the pages of scripture or in the words of sermons. Do you see glory? When you see Christ revealed not only as the king who is high and lifted up and exalted. But as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. Do you see glory? Do you see a savior who is full of grace and truth? Do you see, Isaiah 53, 1, the outstretched hand of the Lord stretched out to you in the misery of your sin to rescue you and bring you back to himself? Do you embrace by faith this Jesus as both your suffering Savior, your suffering Messiah, and your reigning King? Or like so many in Jesus' day and ours, Do you ignore him, which is simply a more refined way of despising and rejecting him? For as Isaiah now asserts, the sufferings of the servant are not a sign of the Lord's disfavor, but they are the very means by which he saves his people from their sins. Verses 4 to 6 form the center of this song, and they represent the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of the Christian faith. In a very real sense, Isaiah 53, 4-6 is the very center of Scripture. If you don't understand Jesus in terms of these three verses, you don't understand him rightly. How does Jesus, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, save his people from their sins? Verses 4-6 through six answer that. By showing us that he does so by means of a vicarious, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. So he was despised and rejected of men because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But, says Isaiah, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is not peripheral to the gospel. Consequently, it's not peripheral to the meaning of Christmas. This is the gospel. This is why Christ was born. And your eternal destiny rides on whether or not you comprehend and embrace the truth of these verses. So again, I want to speak to you. If you came in this morning under the weight of sin, afraid of the judgment of God, not knowing how things stand between you and your creator, I want to give you five essential gospel truths that you must understand and embrace if you would be made right with God this morning. And they all come out of verses 4 through 6. Number one, we are all wandering and lost sheep. Every one of us without exception. All of us have turned aside from the way of God. We've chosen to go our own way. We've rejected the Lord as our shepherd and we've tried to shepherd ourselves. We've rejected the Lord as our God and we've tried to be our own God. Determining how we're going to live. What's going to make us happy. What's right for us. What's true for us. All of us were born into that condition. And all of us have lived that out over the course of our lives. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned from his own way. Number two. But in our wandering and straying. We are headed for destruction. For slaughter. Our sin and our rebellion has placed our souls in mortal danger. We have, simply put, offended a just and holy God. We have egregiously, continuously, high-handedly violated his immutable law. And for this, says the Bible, we deserve to die. To be smitten by God and afflicted. To be pierced and crushed under his judgment. To be exposed to his everlasting wrath in a place called hell. Third. But God has extended his gracious arm. He has sent forth his servant, his only begotten son, to take our place as our sin-bearing substitute. At the core of the Christian gospel, and at the core of Isaiah 53, at the core of the purpose of Christ's coming, is this concept of imputation or transfer. What God did when his son, his servant, died on the cross was to cause all of the iniquity of all of his people to be imputed or transferred to Christ. So that Christ stood in the judgment of God as our substitute, bearing our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall, to be imputed to him. Four. Having then imputed or transferred or laid upon the servant, all of the sins of all of his people, all of their transgressions, all of their guilt, all of their defilement. 
God then exposed his servant, his son, to the full extent of his righteous wrath, which happened at the cross. Just look at the verbs here. God pierced him instead of us. God crushed him instead of us. God chastened him instead of us. God scourged him instead of us. And ultimately, God slaughtered him instead of us. Number five, having then absorbed God's wrath, having satisfied God's righteous judgment, the servant of the Lord has thus made peace between God and man. And he heals us of our sin. Whether or not you participate in that peace and whether or not you receive that healing depends entirely upon your reaction and response to these five gospel truths. If you will look upon the sufferings of the Messiah and see in them a substitution given by God in order that you may be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to your creator. And if you will embrace that substitution by faith as the only hope for the salvation of your souls, you will be saved. Fourth. Verses 7 to 9 then continue this theme of substitution, highlighting and making explicit the point that the servant is put forward as the conscious fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices. He is consciously fulfilling the role of the Lamb of God without spot or blemish, slaughtered in order to save his lost and wandering sheep. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth." I think these verses highlight two important aspects of the servant's substitutionary death. His willing submission to that death and his innocence or his sinlessness which qualified him for that atoning death. So first it highlights the willing submission of the servant to the father's plan of salvation. When you read the gospel accounts of the trial and execution of Jesus, you get the very clear idea that the death of Jesus Christ was a grave miscarriage of justice. There was an illegal trial before the Sanhedrin comprised of false witnesses who bore false conflicting testimony. Then there was the Roman governor who examined Jesus, repeatedly and publicly asserted that he found no fault in him, then had him tortured and crucified anyway for no other reason than to appease the crowd and keep the peace. 
Yet the servant of the Lord was no victim of circumstance. He wasn't caught in a web of events beyond his control. He was a shepherd, John 10, on a divine mission to lay down his life for his sheep. No man took his life, Jesus said. He willingly trudged up Calvary's mountain like a sheep to the slaughter, bearing the instrument of his execution upon his back. And he could have put a stop to it at any time. When Pilate says, don't you understand that I have authority to put you to death and I have authority to spare your life? Jesus says, you have no authority but that which was given you from the Father. When when the disciples, Simon Peter included, whip out the sword and and think that they're going to take on a whole Roman garrison with their own haphazard swordsmanship, Jesus says, put that away. Do you not think that my, I could ask my father and he would send me 10,000 angels to lay to waste all of my enemies here in Jerusalem, all of the Romans, in fact, anybody I well please? He's no victim of circumstance. He is a servant submissive to the will of his father. Not my will, but thy will be done. And it was the Father's will to save his people from their sins. And this was the only way to do it. It was the Father's love for sinners that sent the Son to the cross. And it was the Son's love for the Father that willingly obeyed the command. And it is that Son's obedience, that submission to the Father's will, that finally secures our justification before God. Second, though, this stanza highlights the servant's innocence, his sinlessness, which again is vital to his role as the Lamb of God because the law stipulated that the sacrificial lambs had to be spotless, no blemish, no defect. Why? Because they were being offered in atonement for sin and a a defective, defiled sacrifice cannot substitute for, it cannot atone for defective, defiled sinners. Only a pure offering can substitute for the purity that we owe to God but failed to render. Now, those lambs, those sacrifices of the Old Testament were just shadows of the reality to come. And we read here that the servant of the Lord is the substance. He is the reality. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And only a spotless lamb would do. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Well, then the song ends where it began, with an affirmation of the success, the triumph of the servant of the Lord in his redemptive mission. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Man, we could camp out on these last three verses. We won't, but we could. I'm just going to highlight three points and content myself with those. First, I want you to notice the pleasure of the Lord. Isaiah makes a rather startling claim there at the beginning of verse 10, doesn't he? It was the Lord's will. Again, that's a weak translation. Better would be it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him. It was the Lord's delight to crush him, to put him to grief. Now, this doesn't mean that God took some sadistic joy in the suffering of his son He doesn't take delight in the death of anyone who dies, says Ezekiel 18.32. In fact, one commentator, Andrew Davis, reminds us that God gave several indications on that day that he was not at all pleased with what was transpiring at the cross. For he caused the skies to grow dark during midday and the earth to quake beneath his wrath. Rather, I think we ought to understand this statement along two lines. On the one hand, God does delight. He does take pleasure in the demonstration of his righteousness. And it is right. It is just for God to execute vengeance upon the wicked. So when God looked at justice being carried out, even though it was vicarious justice, substitutionary justice, he was pleased, delighted in the justice. On the other hand, the pleasure of the Lord could be looking beyond the cross to the effect which it wrought, namely the vindication of the righteousness of God and the justification of sinners. In other words, the Lord looked at the crushing of his son and took pleasure in what that crushing would affect, namely the salvation of the people whom he loves. Second, notice the satisfaction of the servant. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Well, what is he seeing and what is satisfying him? Out of the anguish of his soul, as he's on the cross, what is he seeing that brings him satisfaction? I count five satisfying sights in, in a verse and a half here. As a result of his soul making an offering for guilt, number one, he will see his offspring. He looks out from the cross and, and, and sees, as it were, the innumerable company of sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation whom he was redeeming at the cost of his own blood. And that satisfied him. Second, it was because, it says, he shall prolong his days. It was because of his obedience unto death and the success of his redemptive work that God raised his son from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. I think he was looking ahead from the cross to his own resurrection, his own exaltation to the right hand of his father. I think that satisfied him. Third, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he has satisfaction of seeing God's eternal redemptive plan come to fulfillment through his work. He was there when the covenant of redemption was enacted. He was there when the Father and the Son and the Spirit decided to save a people from their sins at the cost of the Son's own life. He was there in eternity past before the foundations of the world were laid when this whole plan was set in motion. And he's there hanging on the cross as he sees it being fulfilled in his own blood. And that satisfies him. Fourth, 
By his knowledge and righteousness, he will make many to be accounted righteous because he will bear their iniquities. He thinks about Peter, who's denied him three times, and he's thinking, I'm justifying him. He's my friend. He thinks of me and all of my iniquities and all of the times that I, that I, I used his promise of forgiveness as, as a, an excuse to just go and sin more. And he thinks of all of the evil things that I've done, and he thinks, I'm justifying him. He's my friend. He thinks of you and all of your iniquities, all of your sins and all of your guilt, all of your half-hearted worship. And he thinks I'm bearing their iniquities and I'm going to account them righteous. Number five, he receives the spoils of victory, namely an everlasting kingdom and glory, which then he thinks he's going to share with his justified offspring. The strong, he calls them. He says, by my death, I'm going to receive a kingdom and I'm going to share it with all the people I've loved from before the foundations of the earth. And that satisfied him. Third, I want you to notice the benefit to sinners. Last verse, verse 12. Because the servant poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and because he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, those transgressors, you, me, we receive two extraordinary benefits. First, we receive justification. We're accounted righteous before God because the servant has borne our iniquities. And second, we receive a share in his inheritance. He divides the spoil with us, meaning that we receive everlasting life in an eternal kingdom. Now, this has sounded more like a Passion Week sermon than an Advent sermon. I know that. I'm okay with that. I think Isaiah 53 is absolutely vital to a true understanding of the Advent hope, and I think it's absolutely vital to your right celebration of Christmas. As we have seen, the people of Isaiah expected a Messiah, but the Messianic figure they anticipated was incomplete and one-sided. They expected a king who would change their relationship to the nations who would lift Israel up out of its bondage and obscurity and exalt the throne of David above all other thrones. And that expectation is not unfounded, as we will see next week. But it pertains more to Christ's second advent than his first. Before Christ can become our conquering king, he must become our sacrificial lamb. Our fundamental problem is that our sin has alienated us from God, placed us under his judgment and wrath. Therefore, if God is going to take alienated sinners and reconcile them to himself, he must deal with the problem of sin. And that's exactly what he did through the sacrificial substitution, atoning work of his servant, Jesus. So everything about Christmas is directed first to this one end. And often during the Christmas season, you'll hear people on the news, on the radio, on television, in movies, at family dinner, 
talk about the meaning of Christmas in, in, in terms of vague ideals like love and joy and, and peace and hope, as if all the birth of Jesus did was to generate in this world some optimistic sense that from now on things are just going to be better and therefore we ought to be just nicer to one another. They don't get it. They don't understand why Christ was born. It really isn't vague at all. It was spoken plainly and clearly by the angel of the Lord to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 